Hello, I am Dr Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before, to share their work, ideas, and most importantly, their unfounded opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines, into the evidence behind them, and most interestingly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. If you enjoy this episode, subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform, and don't forget to leave a review. If you have something to share or would like to come on the podcast, find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. On this episode, I'm joined by Justin Wheat. Justin is an MD, PhD student at the Albert Einstein Medical Center in New York City. Yeah, New York, man. I'm excited. I came across Justin when I was listening to the Blood Journal podcast and I heard his boss, Uli Steidel, talking about the process of transcription factors in leukemia. So I looked him up and found a recent first author nature paper by Justin. So I thought, well, I've just got to hear from the man who did the grunt work. I guess you're wondering what made me so interested in what's Justin's boss was saying. Well, I think first we'll touch on a few basics as the interview is fairly technical at places and it's helpful to have that fundamental understanding. So so just to recap, transcription is the the process of making RNA from DNA so that it it can be translated into a full-on protein. As you can imagine, given that there are roughly 20,000 to 25,000 genes in the human genome, they're not all being transcribed and translated all the time as that would be a catastrophic waste of energy. Some genes are only useful in certain cells, uh, hematopoietic stem cells for example, or at different times in our life, such as embryonic development. And that means that transcription is tightly controlled by yet more proteins called transcription factors. These transcription factors trawl through DNA and bind to it at specific places, opening it up and allowing RNA polymerase, which is the enzyme that makes RNA from DNA, um, to get in and, and transcribe. So what Oli Steidel was talking about and what got me interested in this was the chaos of the whole thing. Clearly as our bone marrow is making billions of cells per day every single day of our lives at more or less a constant rate, although it does go up and down in a controlled way in response to infection or blood loss. You would expect that it is a very tightly controlled process, but here's the thing, no one really truly understands how it really is controlled, and that's where Justin and his team are coming in. If you go into the bone marrow and take a million cells and select the ones that look like stem cells, then you mash them up and extract the RNA, you can sequence the RNA and you can see which RNAs have been made in stem cells and then extrapolate what proteins have presumably been made. But, and here's the thing, this this just tells you about the average. It doesn't tell you what's going on in every single cell at a specific moment in time. So people invented single cell RNA sequencing, sequencing and mapping the RNAs that are made in each cell and they find a really heterogeneous landscape. Some cells producing loads of RNAs, some not so many. Even if all those cells are genetically identical, they're still randomly heterogeneous. Why? How is this controlled and, you know, why do we even care? Well, transcription going wrong, as you'll hear from Justin in a moment, is a a hallmark of leukaemia. And to really understand leukaemias, we need to understand transcription at a more fundamental level. In this interview, we're going to talk about lots of really interesting concepts. And if you've listened to my previous podcast, you'll know I'm a fan of this. Speculation, opinion, and a touch of philosophy. Justin really is a phenomenal guy. He has a really good sense of humour and a fantastic lexicon. So sit back and enjoy, and prepared to perhaps not understand absolutely everything. Hi Justin, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing well, Richard. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining me from all the way from New York. It's uh, it's amazing to have international guests on the show. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I did push the boat out and have an Irish guest a few weeks ago, but um, I don't think that really counts as international. Um, although she was German. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been telling people that I've got you on the podcast and I said, oh, I've got this guy from New York. And they're like, oh, wow. Wow. Is this from New York? As if that qualifies you. Anyway. <laughs> so um, um, I... 
you will have listeners will have heard a little bit about you but um just just tell me more where, where are you from where did you study what are you doing at the moment um and then we'll get on to the work which is all to do with transcription and transcriptional dynamics so um where are you originally from justin sure um so i grew up uh, in a small town in new jersey um about an hour south of new york city um spent a number of years up in up in boston for uh university at boston college um and currently i'm an md phd student at the albert einstein college of medicine in uh in the bronx i'm in my final year of uh training um well i should say my 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 pre-graduate training if you will uh for for those of you who are not necessarily familiar with the american system an md phd is uh an NIH funded mechanism, uh, which allows students who are interested in both clinical practice and future careers in, in academic research to uh, do an MD and a PhD degree at one institution. Um, and so I was fortunate to be able to secure one of those spots and have loved the work that I've been doing for the last nine years. So what's your background? How did you get into the MD, PhD? What, were you, what was your <laughs> sort of degree major? What did you do? Yeah. So as an undergrad, uh, I double majored in, in neuroscience and biology. I, I dabbled a little bit in um, some research, um, much more of sort of a neurobiochemistry background, uh, but I sort of got my feet wet at that point. Um, interestingly, I had this, this one, brief, one year sort of brief stint in the UK teaching at a, a boarding school there, this Winchester College down in the okay. south of England. Uh, I, the circuitous path I took to get there is probably not of interest to your listeners, but in any <laughs> case, I, I was there and I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And, um, I, I basically had come down to this decision point of, do I want to follow a, a medical career or a research career? And, um, I took a research job at the Massachusetts General Hospital, um, in Boston after that, that stint in the UK. And I was working for a physician scientist and an MD PhD who, who ran a basic science lab, had a clinical practice treating uh, kids with uh, hematologic malignancies and just seeing um, his ability to sort of walk in, in both pathways sort of opened this door to me that I, I didn't really recognize was a, a viable career path. And as soon I was hooked the second I saw it and I, I knew it was exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And, um, a couple of years later, I matriculated here and uh, I've been happy ever since. So how did you um, get to the, the, the Ulysses Steidl lab? How did that happen? Is that an allocation or is it something you had a choice about? No, yeah. So we had a choice. Um, I, uh, I met Uli at the ASH meeting in 2012 uh, before I, I started here at, uh, at Einstein. Um, and, uh, just got along great with him, uh, at a poster session and sort of knew that if I was accepted at Einstein that I wanted to try to work with him. Um, but after coming to, to Einstein, we, we had the opportunity to rotate through a couple different labs. Um, I, I was actually a co-mentored PhD student. So Uli is one of my mentors. My other is uh, a PI by the name of Robert Singer, who has for a number of years been, um, using single molecule microscopy and computational modeling to study gene expression. Um, and collectively, that's essentially how I built my, uh, my, my PhD research project was uh, through a collaborative, you know, approach between those two. Okay. So if you, you've done a couple of years of clinical training and then stepped onto the PhD program, is that how that works? Uh, we do two years of preclinical training, so really not much patient-facing, you know, experience. In the U.S. we have a series of uh, what are called step exams, which is kind of like our licensing exams. Okay. Um, so at the end of those two years, you take what's known as step one, and then you disappear to the lab for for. In my case, it was five years. Uh, I am currently in my second year of uh, the majority of my time in the hospital, taking care of patients. Um, what you think of uh as a like real medical school training um, so you're out out of the lab now really i never really can leave i find that every <laughs> opportunity i get I, i'm rushing back in there i'm actually uh currently on a a few weeks back in the lab just in between some 
some clinical electives. Uh, but uh, I, 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 our, our institution does a really great job of interfacing the, the clinical realm and the basic science realm. And so I've been really fortunate to be able to weave my way back and forth in between, um, I don't want to say seamlessly, but uh, uh, with not so much friction, how about? <laughs> okay. And did you have much, uh, I mean, your paper in nature is is is, is very technical. There's a lot of uh, uh, computational biology and things going on. I mean, is that all training from the PhD or have you had, did you have an idea of what you were doing beforehand from your undergrad or is it a passing interest in things you've taught yourself? Probably a little bit, a uh, combination of a few of those. So yeah. um, through my mentorship in, in particularly Rob Singer's lab, uh, we had a lot of people in the, in our group that were either physicists by training or um, uh, had essentially more exposure to, quantitative modeling. Um, and it sort of piqued an interest that I didn't know was there. I don't have a math background. I had never done any sort of computer science, uh, prior to coming to Einstein. Um, and it, it sort of opened this new arena of, of biology and, and biomedical research that I, I didn't know was there. So a good chunk of it was curiosity leading to self-teaching. And then we had some wonderful collaborators in systems biology here at Einstein um, who uh, made sure that my maths were not uh, completely out of line um, and helped me steer, you know, steer my thinking towards uh, something that was, um, you know, a bit more, a bit more meaningful, I would say. So it was a sort of combination of the two. Okay, well that's that's great. I think we're really we're really getting to know each other now, which is uh, which is lovely. I, I mean, it sounds like you've got an absolutely cra- crazy lifestyle. You live in you live in New York. You've got basically two full time jobs. Um, your wife doesn't believe in you. <laughs> I better explain. I better explain that. So when I emailed Justin last week, I saw, I, saw, I heard his boss talking on the Blood Blood podcast, and uh, I emailed him and said, um, oh, "It'd be great to have you on the, on the podcast." Thinking I'll just get ignored here. This guy's you know his first name Nature Paper. He's a big cheese uh, working in a great lab in a great in a great institution. And he emailed back said, oh, "I'm rich, rich. I'm absolutely flattered. My wife, uh, my wife can't believe that you think I'm interesting enough." So um, he, your your wife's your wife's no good, no good for you. <laughs> uh you know you mentioned uh you're happy to help assist with marital point scoring i, I think it's just been such a, a an asymmetric battle at this point that she just you know assumes that i can't throw points on the board at all so um but no she she's incredibly supportive it's it's been uh she's been a wonderful partner um, through all of this good well 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 said i think that's a very diplomatic uh, way to finish that section so uh, we'll, we'll we'll swiftly move on um I, I think as i explained before you, your work is is quite technical i think it's going to be it's difficult to understand i've, I've dissected your paper and I, I think this is the podcast i've prepared the most for um and understood the least and that's not a slur on you it's just it's it's they're complicated um or they're they're, they're difficult concepts i think so i think we'll just try and start at the start and and not sure. assume too much knowledge from either me or, or any listeners um so i mean indulge me if you will should we just recap on sort of hemopoiesis and how that happens sure yeah putting you on the spot a little bit no yeah um so as i'm sure most of your your listeners will have uh some insight into this but you know hematopoiesis is a a hierarchical differentiation schema um starting and thought to be rooted in a pool of stem cells of varying degrees of, of pluripotency uh, that go through sequential steps of uh, effectively fate restriction that we would recognize under the microscope as you know the variety of blasts that we all learn in our histology courses in medical school. Uh, ultimately, to give rise to cells that are are competent to um, uh, produce the just amazing degree of both output and plasticity that's required to supply our bloodstream. Um, so there are a number of different models about how hematopoiesis works. A lot of that is due to fighting, I would say within, uh, some of the mirroring hematopoiesis researchers, but, um, suffice it to say, I think that what we can probably agree on the most is that, uh, there are, uh, pools of cells that can be immunophenotypically isolated 
with varying degrees of, of potency to uh, reconstitute different lineages within the blood system. Okay. I, 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 these are interesting facts that I have previously looked up. I, I'll put you on the spot again. How many? Do you know how many red blood cells are made per second? This is something I always tell patients. I think they love it. They love these. Facts. I know it's remarkable. I know. Um, so. Uh, I believe the estimates are about 2 million per second and about 2 million white cells, I believe per second too. Yeah. 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 It's just, they're just unfathomable numbers. I think, and it always strikes me as, as amazing. And it fills me with wonder. It, it's amazing that there's people yeah. like trying to understand that because, you know, it's clearly a very chaotic, difficult system to understand. And, and we'll, we'll touch on that later. Um, the other sure. important concept I think is transcription. Um, yeah. So it's very simply transcription being um, the, transcription of dna into rna so that rna can be made into protein um yeah but clearly there's a lot more complexity there as well and there's these things called transcription factors that 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 try to um regulate that process you want to just touch on transcription factors for me and just explain explain that a bit more right so so transcription factors um which is really the 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 class of genes that i'm most interested in and, and that my boss Louis is most interested in these are proteins, uh, highly conserved proteins that their job is to, um, select the cohorts of genes that are either expressed or repressed, um, within a particular cell in, and I think actually probably a little more specifically in a particular cell in a particular context. So they're like effectively the, the integrators of information about what's going on in the outside world. And they help to organize the, the transcriptional network of this cell. Uh, in a way that is uh, productive to um, responding to that environment. So do transcription factors alter the um, expression of more than one gene or one gene, or are they very specific to certain genes or how, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we're still learning more and more about this. Um, by and large, they usually it's at least a, a cohort of genes that they're regulating at any given moment, the size of that cohort being somewhat dependent on each particular transcription factor. Okay. And do they have one specific binding site in the, in the, in the, in the DNA or multiple chromosomes? Yeah. So that, that bind across. Yeah. That, that's another great question. Um, there's usually a central motif for every transcription factor, meaning there's some sequence of eight, TCG that they have high affinity for there. We're learning more and more about how the local DNA also influences the ability of a factor. So, you know, for instance, one of the genes I study a lot is P1 and uh, it's an ETS family transcription factor. And that means that it, it recognizes a GGAA motif more than anything else. But if you look at the DNA around it um, in so sort of like a, a chromatin uh, immunoprecipitation and sequencing experiment, you see that it has some more selectivity. So it likes having A's and T's upstream of that GGAA. And so there are different rules depending on developmental context and each individual transcription factor that um, assign its specificity. And the transcription, how do they get in? Because presumably these histones have to be open. So the, the chromatin has to be open for them to get in. Are the transcription factors involved in opening the chromatin? Yep. Um, and th that's another area of really active research. Some factors uh, uh, appear to have the ability to open uh, chromatin irrespective of its degree of compaction. Okay. Uh, other factors appear to be a little bit uh, more sensitive to the degree of local compaction and really can't access DNA that's, that's tightly bound up or decorated by, um, you know, PTMs that silence the, the site. And so we, we kind of, just because we like binning things, of course, um, we, we call the, the former car, uh, category uh, pioneer factors. Pioneer meaning that they can go in anywhere they want and sort of open it. Whereas uh, the latter, I don't really actually think there's a good catch name for the, the latter category, but de dependent transcription factors. We'll, we'll make up one on the spot here. Homestay. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> the guys that didn't migrate from Ireland. To, to... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, in hematology, so in hemopoiesis, you've mentioned PU.1, um, yeah. other ones like RUNX1, GATA1, GATA2. Are they pioneer factors or are they something else? 
So P1, uh, I think is, is, I think there's fairly convincing evidence that it is a pioneer factor. Um, GATA2 has also been shown to have some pioneering activity. I think the story is still a little unclear for GATA1. Um, I, I think a, the, the strict cater, uh, categorization into pioneer versus non-pioneer is, is always a little bit dependent on the way the researchers did the experiment and in the context they did the experiment. So um, it's, it's not always entirely trivial to, to say one way or the other, but I think P1 is fairly well established now as a pioneer. Okay. And clearly it's, it's the interest in understanding disease that often fuels research. We're not, we're not just interested yeah. in transcription factors for the hell of it. They, they, they have sure. involved in leukemia. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, um, in such a clinically heterogeneous disease, I think if you could pick one sort of feature of leukemia, molecular feature of leukemia, that seems to be true across the board. It, it really seems like it's deregulation of transcription factors. Um, whether that means taking them out of their normal concentration limits. Um, uh, I think the classic example of that is in version three AML where you're taking the GATA2 enhancer and flipping it and driving expression of EVI1, uh, causing both of them to go outside of their normal concentration ranges. Uh, or by, you know, buffering the, um, the activity of these transcription factors. And the classic example of that um, are the core binding factor leukemias, particularly uh, the amyloidal oncogene is known to directly interfere with P1, for instance, its ability to bind to the genome and uh, execute its transcriptional program. Fine, which means that those cells get stuck at a, a stage of differentiation, presumably. Yep, yeah, I think that's the uh, theory. Yeah. What do you mean, mean by concentration limits? Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> so what, it, what just to sort of clarify, what it, what it meant is that uh, if we think about um, a normal hematopoietic stem cell, it um, through evolution of its transcriptional network, it's used to seeing, if you will, say 100 units of GATA2 at any given moment of time. And then you do something like flip its enhancer around, and now it no longer turns on GATA2, and those 100 units go down to, say, 10 units. And now all of a sudden, the, the whole network is screwed up because we just don't have enough GATA2 around. I'm sure that the audience would be interested in lots of other genes that they would have heard of, um, in AML and, and, and MDS, often they were including genetics reports. And, and we, we as clinicians will often understand, or maybe not understand, but remember that a lot of these have clinical relevance, but not really understand yeah. what these things do. So I, I know that a lot of these, if you ask for a myeloid panel of NGS, a lot of these genes will be involved in epigenetics, there'll be, all, there'll be transcription factors, and they'll be doing other things. I, I'd love you to touch on a few of those, um, just yeah, to help, sure. help everyone who's listening feel familiar yeah. So I think one of the ones that most of the audience will immediately recognize is this RUNX1 transcription factor. Um, <clears throat> RUNX1 is the uh, one of the halves of the TA21 translocation. And so you are, in a genetic way, actually disrupting uh, the DNA, uh, excuse me, the transactivation domain of RUNX1. And while it's now uh, bringing this oncoprotein all over the genome to wherever normally RUNX1 would bind, it doesn't have its ability to turn on and off genes the way it normally would. But we also see it obviously mutated um, both in the germline setting and in patients with uh, PTD. Um, and they have obviously a, a much higher rate of AML development later on in life. Um, but then also, as you rightly say, uh, Richard, and NGS panels, we just see somatic mutations in RUNX1. Many of those are affecting the DNA binding domain, and that <clears throat> presumably is, is leading to uh, an inability of the transcription factor to bind to its target sites in the genome. You mentioned uh, epigenetics, and I, I think that's one of the hottest areas of AML and MDS research right now is you know, what is it that tattoo and uh, DNMT3A and uh, IDH1 and 2, what, are, what exactly are they actually doing to create malignancy? Um, and while I'm not going to pretend to know the answer to that question, um, what I can say is, you know, the, the role of what epigenetic enzymes are doing is they're, they're effectively the, the information embedder of transcription factors. They, the transcription factor is 
calling these enzymes to the chromatin and saying, I want, you know, um, not to anthropomorphize this too far, but, um, know that I want to turn this gene on. I want to turn this gene off. And the way that it does that is by changing the chromatin uh, biochemistry itself. And so when we mutate these epigenetic enzymes, it's, I like to think of it like we've effectively corrupted this, uh, information conduit, um, uh, that allows these factors to communicate to the genome itself. Okay. I think clearly there's a, there's a current understanding of, of, leukemogenesis and transcription factors that, that that definitely isn't complete having read your work in this review that was in blood just a couple of weeks ago um let's just go into that now i think that's the thing that really piqued my interest is is that the transcription isn't something that's constant and it's not something that's particularly well understood how it's controlled from a from a more top-down top-down way yet we have this beautiful system that that's in steady state and and manages to churn out two million red blood cells a day without fail for 75 to 110 years of life um, and and rarely goes goes wrong yet at a molecular level it seems to be incredibly random um yeah let's 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 go into that because it's the thing i think that most listeners won't have heard of at all um, there's a couple of um terms that i think are worth thinking about first having having read read your stuff um firstly molecular noise um and this is a concept yeah. that i I've, I've read a bit about but don't don't really understand tell me about molecular noise sure so um i i should say that it's it's a it's become a bit of a catch-all in some ways and so i think it's worth sort of distilling down um exactly where this comes from. So about a hundred years ago, Schrodinger actually, he wrote this, uh, this piece, what is life? I think it was actually maybe initially a, a presentation he gave at Oxford. And, um, he essentially theorized that, you know, the beautiful biochemistry that we can do in the lab in, in flasks, it, it, it can't operate that way in the cell. And there was two reasons for that. The first is, um, that within the cell, uh, things are highly partitioned, meaning it's not, it's not a well-mixed reaction flask. So there's physical barriers to molecules getting where they need to go to meet the enzymes that will do the next step in whatever process is at play. The second end of this is that um, because things are present in actually fairly small copy numbers, that this partitioning effect gets really amplified. I think this is something that we don't really think about frequently, particularly when we're doing our, whether it's university study or our medical study um, on how the cell operates is just how few number of molecules is typically at play. So the number of RNAs, for instance, for most transcription factors is on the order of, you know, tens of copies. And, and so the net effect of this is that um, instead of thinking about the reactions that constitute the central dogma as reaction rates, the way that we tend to think about it in sort of the Michaelis-Menten sense, it's really, I think, probably more appropriate to think about it as there's some probability of this reaction taking place per unit time. And this is where molecular noise comes in. So molecular noise is essentially that because we have these low copy numbers of reactants, and because these reactions are partitioned highly within the cell, that even if we took identical clonal cells and put them in identical environments, because we're dealing with probabilities rather than deterministic rate constants, we're going to have uh, essentially a distribution of outcomes for any parameter that we're interested in studying. You can sort of imagine that as we scale the number of molecules, the amount of noise in a population effectively will reduce. And that is indeed actually true. But for a lot of the things that we care about, whether it's in normal hematopoiesis or in leukemogenesis, we're talking about things that are occurring on the lower molecular uh, count threshold or range, I guess I should say. So molecular noise is essentially just capturing that, that you know, no matter how controlled the system is, individual cells will always behave slightly differently because um, it's just a sort of consequence of the physics. Why does that cause a problem when we're trying to when we're trying to study this? So, where it, it, I wouldn't say it necessarily causes a problem, but what it means is that the ensemble 
Um, meaning the average of say you're doing some experiment and you take a hundred thousand cells, pull them together and you measure some variable of interest. What it actually means is that the ensemble behavior sort of represents a trajectory of how the reaction takes place that is never in a probabilistic sense, it essentially has zero probability of ever happening in life, meaning that all these individual cells that went into the reaction, they're all behaving slightly differently. And the population average is behaving a particular way, but nothing within the, the flask at the beginning was acting along those, those ways. I think the thing that I find most interesting about having sort of seen this with my own eyes and uh, in my PhD work and thinking about the, the, the impact of that when we think about clonal processes, whether it's generating blood or a clonal uh, process generating leukemia, we, we need to really be able to understand what are all the trajectories that go into the normal bucket that cause that we would typically um, study at that ensemble level, because we really need to define those boundaries first before we can figure out what's really abnormal. Right. Okay. It, uh, this is a very, <laughs> it's a difficult concept, isn't it? It is a really difficult yeah. concept. Um, I guess my, my having, having done a bit of reading this week, I guess my, my thought is that clearly at a single cell level, things are different in every single cell and looking at the whole mm. population cannot tell you exactly what's going on in one cell. It's, it's a bit like sort of quantum mechanics, isn't it? It's, it? The whole, the whole thing smells so much of quantum physics and that, you know, you, you can't know how fast something is going, where it is. You can't know those two things. It almost feels like the yeah. same for, for biology. Um, and I, I yeah. think we'll touch on that, touch on that later. Um, sure. the other, the other um, concept is this burst frequency and that relates to yeah. molecular noise i think i mean tell me if i'm talking absolute sure. dog dog no, no, here, no. but i mean that relates yeah, to molecular no, no. noise because transcription as i said before isn't steady state it happens in bursts yeah right exactly so um i think transcriptional bursting is a perfect example of uh what i mean by molecular noise so when genes are turned on and off um i think in our textbooks, we think about them as light switches sort of being triggered on and off. And maybe there's a dimmer on there that can help adjust concentrations. But when you actually look at the level of individual genes, what you see is that um, these genes are turning on with some probability per unit time. And that leads to intermittent discontinuous transcription. And the reason for that, I think there are a lot of reasons. It's a, it's a Currently, it's a, it's a heavily researched area about the exact mechanisms for why we have bursts. But getting back to my earlier point about the fact that we're, we're dealing with probabilistic reactions instead of you know, reaction rates, it, it sort of makes sense. It's, it's because the things that are needed to begin initiation of productive transcription, they're also going to be subject to these same uh, issues with molecular noise. And you're talking about, you know, the, um, the joint probability of having all the things in the right place at the right time. Sort of the consequence of that is that transcription, because it's discontinuous, um, the degree of noise then starts to become really contingent on uh, how quickly we can get rid of the RNA, how fast we can decay it out of the system. Um, and uh, I think uh, one gene in particular that typifies this for me is MYC, which is something I think every oncologist probably recognizes. MYC is this gene that, you know, has a half-life of about 20 minutes at both the RNA and the protein level. And for that very reason, you can look in a, a clonal cell population and, and look at MYC expression, and you can see that the majority of cells have no MYC expressed whatsoever. Um, but if you were to track those cells over time, you would see it fluctuate and come on and off and on and off. And um, uh, so that's, that's essentially getting to this point of uh, how transcriptional bursting can also contribute to some of this molecular noise. So I know you touched on the fact that we don't really understand how, the, how that happens. How do you get this bursting? So let's take Mick. I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Have, have you got any guesses as to why, why this happens? What, where's the field? What do we know? Yeah, so um, I don't know if I can say exactly for Mick, but I, I think sort of the gestalt in the field is uh, that 
the act of making uh, an M uh, any RNA, I actually should say, but let's take mRNA for now, um, is not just get Paul two on the gene and then it starts transcribing. Paul two binds and unbinds from the locus, and then it goes into this uh, what's called a paused state where this it can hang out on the gene for a certain amount of time. This is DNA polymerase. Uh, RNA polymerase. Oh, RNA polymerase. Yeah, yeah. yeah sorry. Um, and then it needs a, another series of reactions to make it start elongating through the rest of the locus. All the while, you actually have multiple Paul molecule, Paul two molecules that are are loading onto the locus. And so this typically actually occurs in sort of convoys. I think of it like a train, sort of, where the train is starting and stopping. It's stuck at the station. And then only when the environmental cues are exactly right, and I mean sort of the local environment in the chromatin, the the the, uh, phosph the, the kinases that are in the vicinity, um, the different transcription factors that are vicinity, all the pole molecules will get triggered at the same moment and they'll fire and they'll run down the gene at the same time. Okay. So you'll get sort of a, very quickly, you'll make multiple copies of the RNA and then the locus will relax back down to a quiet state until it's ready to go again. And that's been controlled in, in health, presumably by external growth factors and things like that. Like it's, it's in. Is that yeah. So um, that's, that's an area again of, of really active research and um, the growth factors are definitely integrating on this process and helping to control a lot of the enzymes that would, would trigger Paul two to move through a locus. Uh -huh. Um, but this is also just tonically happening within the cell as well without any, uh, stimulation necessary. Okay. And I guess that off, that off period is a, is a evolutionary mechanism to stop us having over, um, over yeah, I mean, a lot of that is philosophy, I think, but, mm -hmm. which is probably the coolest part of biology at this point. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there's, there's great work by, um, uh, an Israeli systems biologist, Uri Alon, who, who has studied this process. And I think there's some degree of sort of resource management, you know, to continuously make all the genes in your genome is, is energetically not very efficient. So um, the way I like to think about it when I, when I talk about this topic in particular is to say, I, I, I sort of think of it like a spring, um, the chromatin meaning. Um, and it's, it's more, it's more efficient for the system to be shut off, for the string to be compressed. And we have to do something to help open up that string. Um, uh, sorry, spring. Um, so I, that's the way I, I tend to think of transcription, that it's, uh, it's typically in an off state and we have to do stuff. We have to inject energy into the system to help make that gene. But in net, it's probably more efficient that way. Okay. So this burst or uh, your, as your boss says, the burstiness, which I think is a fantastic phrase, this burstiness yeah. transcription clearly makes it difficult to study. Um, and a lot of people have heard of single cell RNA-seq, which, you know, to, me yeah. in, to many intents and purposes can really help study transcription at a, a single cell level. But hopefully um, most of us will now be realising, having listened to you for the last 20 minutes, that this, um, that single cell RNA seq isn't enough. You need, you know, you, you can't just take cells at one point of time um, and work out what's going on with them. So you, you guys have got some novel techniques to use in the lab. Tell, tell me more. Sure. Um, so the lab of one of my co-mentors, uh, Dr. Singer, he, I guess going back about 30 years now, I initially invented this technique of single molecule RNA fish. Um, and it's something that has been used quite extensively in sort of the biophysics and, and systems biology groups, but I really hadn't made its way into hematopoiesis research. Um, the value of SM fish, which is short for single molecule fish, um, is that it really allows you to have incredibly high sensitivity at the level of single molecules. Um, you may ask, you know, why do I want to be able to see single molecules? Um, and I think, in juxtaposition to single cell, single cell RNA sequencing, I think is really where the benefit of that becomes apparent. Yeah. So single cell sequencing is, is great because we can see whole networks and single cells and it, you learn just a ton of information about, you know, um, essentially at steady state where things are. 
And you can draw some important conclusions from those studies. The problem is that, and this is just a technical hurdle, is that the sensitivity is quite poor. Um, so it's not a good tool really for uh, excluding certain models of how things are. They won't detect things that are expressed. Uh, I should say it won't reliably detect genes that are expressed, you know, on the order of tens of molecules. And so for that reason, because we were interested in studying transcription factors, we, we thought, well, it's probably important that we, we use something with the highest sensitivity possible. Um, and therefore, that's why we use SMFish. So it affords us the ability to have high sensitivity. The other thing that it, it does for us is um, because we maintain spatial um, uh, information. Um, I should actually maybe just say for, for those listening that uh, this is a technique where in, after doing our fish, we do a microscopy uh, to essentially gather our information. So in that way, we, we still have uh, spatial information embedded. And because of that, we can actually see these transcriptional bursts happening in the nucleus. We can see these big bright foci um, that correspond to the gene being currently transcribed. And the reason that that's useful is that we can then do some, uh, some modeling given the, the copy number of mRNA that we're seeing in the cytoplasm, the mature mRNA, and seeing the frequency and size of these bursts, we can start to get a sense of what the underlying reaction constants or probability of a particular reaction taking place are for that particular cell in that particular context. Okay. And that's something that really we, we, we can do a little bit of it with single cell sequencing, but it has to be for the right genes. And as I said, a lot of the genes we care about at the particularly transcription factors, it's just, it's probably below the detection threshold of single cell RNA sequencing. Do you think a lot of single cell RNA sequencing has been done this far um, looking at transcription, transcription networks and, and essentially RNA expression in, in leukemia is, is wrong? No, I don't think it's wrong. I mean, there's some really amazing work that has come out from a number of groups. Um, and I think we, we learned something new with every single one of those studies. Um, I, as with, you know, uh, every, every experimental science, um, it will continue to evolve and it will help shape our thinking going forward. I guess the um, reason I, I guess the reason I asked the question is not to, not to piss people off, but, um, I, I guess if you're saying that, that lo very low copy number transcription factors are what's required to sort of drive cell differentiation, clearly with single cell RNA seq, those, those things are being missed. So are the conclusions that people are drawing really valid? I certainly don't want to comment on, you know, sort of the entire field. I think <laughs> everyone, everyone knows, you know, um, I, everyone has had the experience of reading a paper and your eyebrow goes up because you mm. think maybe the conclusions being drawn um, are a little bit stronger than the data actually supports. But I, I still think that there are, are useful studies out there, uh, particularly there are some studies that are starting to with these technical limitations um, there, uh, there, some studies are starting to now also do um, genotype calling with the single cell RNA sequencing. And I think that holds enormous promise. Um, that gets much, much closer to uh, something that can be, you know, clinically actionable um, in the, I don't think in the not so distant future. Okay. I, we haven't got time to go through your, your, your sort of very impressive nature paper to lo in, in, in lots of detail, but I, I guess the question is, why did it get into nature? What makes it so novel? <laughs> what makes it so novel? I, I well, um, first of all, I don't, I don't know why it's, it's such a, uh, speaking of probabilities, I, I, it's such a stochastic process getting anything into any journal. So yeah. I still am somewhat bewildered that it, it was accepted into nature. Um, I, I think, you know, if I had to distill it down to the two key points um, that I think gave it some novelty, I think the first would be because we use this very high sensitivity technique, um, we sort of picked an attractive cadre of transcription factors to go for because this essential problem in the field for a long time was whether or not stem cells co-express transcription factors that 
in four different lineages. Um, and so there was this sort of raging debate over the last, you know, 20 years or so about whether or not, um, in our case, P1 and, and GATA factors, P1 being a, a more myeloid driving transcription factor, and the GATA factors being more erythroid megakaryocytic driving transcription factors, uh, whether they were ever co-expressed at all. And um, indeed, there was a, a number of single cell sequencing studies that had come out where either they failed to detect any cells that were co-expressing and, or they found that there were very few cells that were co-expressing. I say this because the backdrop to this is, you know, in the nineties, when they started working out, how do you make a red cell? How do you make a neutrophil? They did a series of elegant experiments where they were overexpressing these different transcription factors and could show you could reprogram cells from one lineage to the other. And so there was this model put forward of antagonism between you know, these, these, these genes, um, at a critical bipotent step before cells specified to a, an erythroid or a myeloid pathway. So anyway, that was the backdrop. And when we did the fish, what we were sort of surprised to see was that, um, in contrast to what had been shown in the sequencing, effectively every cell was co-expressing these transcription factors. So that was sort of the big, the first big take home that, um, we were, we were missing something with sequencing and it, whether or not it actually matters in the course of differentiation, I think that's still an unresolved question, but what we can say is that those at, at the RNA level, those, those genes were definitely being made at the same time and in every single cell that we saw. So that was the, the first big take home. The second, so what, let me, why, why is that important that they, they are being expressed at the same time? What's, what's the relevance? The relevance is because uh, it sort of means that we, we need to get a, a better handle of how these things interact with each other. Okay. If, they, if there really is a cell state in which they're, they're co-expressed, and that means that they're doing something to one another to antagonize each other's network. And so we, we need to get a little bit more fine-grained with our description of how they regulate their cohorts of genes, because that really gets down to the essential question of how do we make one lineage versus another. Um, and, and that's why it was important. If we never saw any cells co-expressing, then it, it actually becomes easier because we can say, well, you know, some signal is received by the cell and it tells it to make out a one. And then that makes that cell a red cell because it enforces that, that decision. So I think that's, um, that was sort of the, the importance of that finding, which sort of led to the second, I think, important consideration and, um, there has been sort of, I don't want to say a dichotomy because it's too strong of a term, but for lack of a better one, I'll use it, between thinking about hematopoiesis as being driven by cytokines, uh, meaning I have a pluripotent cell, it sees EPO, it makes red cells, versus um, a system somewhat like I described before, where you have uh, stochastic co-expression of antagonistic factors and sort of like discs going down a Plinko uh, set, you will, depending on imbalances in the network, you will go down one pathway or the other. I should say at the outset, I don't think either model is uh, right. I think they integrate with each other. Um, but the essential um, difference between those models is one is is highly deterministic and the other is stochastic, uh, meaning that it's subject to, to noise. So we wanted to understand um, if we looked at hematopoietic stem cells and we looked at how these genes fluctuated with respect to each other, whether the system appeared to be driving towards either a GATA high state or a P1 high state and was sort of stuck there, that would sort of indicate that it's a deterministic system versus were cells able to become P1 high for a little while and then revert back. And um, the sort of conclusion of that piece was that the, the latter appeared to be, you know, better supported by our evidence. And again, that gets, the, the importance of that is that it has implications for regenerative medicine. It has implications for how we think about hematopoiesis works normally. And um, it, it indicates that uh, uh, stochasticity at the level of transcriptional networks um, is an important feature of hematopoietic stem cells. 
and the clinical end game of all this is to try and cure patients with leukemia i guess isn't it um your yeah, lab yeah. and your lab i know has been doing some some work on that although this seems this seems very much trying to understand the physiology but presumably the end game is to try and develop treatments that do what correct these erroneous transcriptional networks yeah i i can think of it you know in two different ways i think it, it in one it, you know in sort of one bucket we can think well should we revisit some of the the pathophys that and some of the mechanisms that we think are at play in leukemia and see how exactly those mechanisms shift these dynamics and stem cells the obvious thing i think as well is to say well you know what it what are drugs that um, we use in the clinic for treating AML patients, what do they actually yeah. do to the dynamics of these transcriptional networks? And can we, can we exploit some of their, you know, uh, pharmacokinetic properties to really influence the state distribution, if you will, of, of HSCs? I think the third area that I'm particularly interested in is can we use this information to really do regenerative medicine for patients with leukemia. What I mean by that is instead of having to rely on auto transplants for AML patients, which has a, obviously a ton of morbidity and high mortality, could we get to a place where um, we could reprogram fibroblasts from a patient if we knew how to organize the net, these networks in a way that made them look like an HSC? Um, could we take HSCs from these patients that aren't mutated uh, and do some sort of a reprogramming to make them more STEM-like and expand them in a, in a meaningful way so that we can do safe auto um, in, in AML patients. So I, I think there's, there's a whole realm of medicine that could be opened up by getting a better handle of how uh, hematopoiesis works normally. Okay. This has been one of the most fascinating hours of my life. So thank you very much. Um, I think I'd, I'd like us to try and end on sort of thinking about, we, we touched on philosophy and I, it is an important, it is an important part because <laughs> this almost feels like, I, I think I read, I read something earlier. This almost feels like we're at the stage in understanding like quantum mechanics was in the 1920s. And you already mentioned Schrodinger. Um, do you think humans are going to be capable of understanding this at you know, a true level? I mean, do we need to understand it completely? Can we just we could because we've been treating people with with leukemia with you know DA three plus ten for for many many years mm -hmm. and and some of those patients do very well some of them do very badly sure. and you wonder sure. whether the ones that do badly it's not really a it's not really a function of the disease it's a function of the fact the treatment doesn't work and the fact that we only yeah. have a couple of treatments for AML really to to cure that disease so I mean what do you think is it is this something that's beyond is beyond humanity's reach or is it within our grasp? <laughs> No, I, I look, I, I mean, I'm, I'm dedicating my life to working on it. So I hope it's not outside of grasp. Um, it's a great question. I, so it's very hard to see things at the network level, I, I will say. And, uh, and to see all these moving pieces and how they fit together. It's, it's, what, it's really, it's, it's a challenge. What do you, what do you mean by the network level? Uh, sorry. So, you know, I, I focused our, you know, our main paper was focused on three genes mm. and it was fairly, um, fairly, you know, small, <laughs> small study. Um, we had to think about extrapolating that across the whole genome and making sense of how fluctuations in all these different factors, even at just the level of RNA is going to be a monumental, um, undertaking. That's not even getting to the level of what's happening as these RNAs are being translated and, and then their activity after the fact. So there's sort of an endless number of questions that can still be asked. In terms of the, the clinical implication, I think I touched a little bit on, on some of the areas where I think this really could make some dividends. And particularly, I think, you know, using this as a, a way of identifying uh, novel targets for, for drugging um, to increase our repertoire of, of things that we can use for AML and MDS. I, I think that's where it holds the most clinical promise. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, I, I'm, 
I, I've, I feel like our paper got very much in the nitty gritty on one particular little circuit and in the intervening year, particularly spending most of that time uh, in the hospital, I was just sort of blown away by how robust the system is normally. I mean, we have patients that are floridly septic and their counts come back to normal when they're fine again. And so I, I've, I've been finding that I don't, I'm a bit split brain in a way. I I like things at the single cell level. I, I like studying things with this high resolution technique, but ultimately nature is sort of driving this process based on the emergent properties of blood. So what is the ensemble actually doing? Um, in order to make sure that the, you know, the patient in front of you makes enough neutrophils per day. Yeah. That's the part where I think my mind sort of just shuts <laughs> off. I'm not smart enough to be able to capture that exactly, but I think it's a fascinating question. And, and it, in a lot of ways gets to the very root of hematologic pathology, uh, understanding, I think that nugget will give us new insight into understanding hematology in a, in a way that I don't think we really fully appreciate at the moment. And I think it gets to the root of what it actually means to be human as well. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, uh, again, I, going back to my wife, I, I definitely bore her to tears talking about my, my love of blood over the past 10 years, but, um, it's, I feel, I feel your know, pain in exactly the same situation. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so it's, uh, it's a remarkable system. Justin, what's next for you? Currently applying for internal medicine residencies in the U.S. Um, and uh, with the intention of pursuing a hematology oncology fellowship, um, ideally uh, if the stars align and uh, I get very lucky along the way. Um, I'd love to be able to have my own basic science lab and be able to treat patients uh, with AML and MBS. So that's, that's really the long-term plan for me, but I'm currently mired in, uh, residency applications at the moment, which is not the most fun way to be spending my time, but necessary. <laughs> when would you start residency? Uh, next July. Okay. And during that time, would you have lab time as well or, or not? So residencies, uh, by and large, um, with, with a few exceptions, but for the most part, they are full-time clinical training. So, um, particularly during your first two years, okay. there's some interesting, um, training programs in the U S where there are, um, uh, you, you can essentially short track and, and get out of residency a year early. I think that has a lot of appeal for people who are interested in basic science, like I am to get back in the lab a little bit sooner yeah. so that, you know, the whole field doesn't blow by you, but, um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> okay. Okay. And, um, presumably you'll continue to work on, on, on this kind of stuff in the future. Would you, you go back to the same lab? Would you stay at Albert Einstein? What would you do? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, some of your viewers or did they have a match in the UK? I, that may not mean anything. So in the U S when you apply for residency and, and then actually fellowship, um, you sort of get assigned, you, you apply to a bunch of programs, yeah. you, you give a list of where you'd like to go. Yeah. And then wherever your top matches, that's where you go. So it'll, it'll come down, uh, to where I match basically. Um, I'm very happy where I am right now. Uh, but, uh, we'll, we'll see where next year takes me. <laughs> I think being happy is, is, is incredibly important and you clearly, clearly you've been able to do amazing work and you can only do that by, by being happy with where you are and who's supervising you and home life and where you live and yeah. and, and all sorts. So it is massively important, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, well, after that hour, I feel like I really well, really know you quite well now. I think that's nice. Uh, I know how your mind works. You're incredibly elo eloquent, <laughs> uh, well-spoken. There's some beautiful words you've used, uh, Stoichiom it was a sto stochastic you've used uh gestalt yeah. <laughs> came in uh brilliant no it's brilliant um lovely to speak to you justin and um we'll stay hey, it was in great touch. talking be, to you be, too it'd be good to have a friend in new york <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah anytime you guys well probably post pandemic but uh yeah. if you're in new york let me know we'll do and similarly if you were i live in a little town called canuck which is um is is a very little town but close to birmingham and um okay we've got we've got some beautiful nice. outdoor outdoor spaces so similarly if you uh if you fancy it uh, let me know 
but post pandemic. I love the UK, so yeah, absolutely. Good. All right. Well, take care and um, good luck. Good luck with everything. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Good talking to you. Wow. Well, blimey, that was some hardcore science. Justin is incredibly knowledgeable and that was an absolute pleasure. If you want to look up Justin's paper in Nature, it's called Single Molecule Imaging of Transcription Dynamics in Somatic Stem Cells. And if you want to have a look at his very recent review in Blood, around the same topic, it's called Gene Expression at a Single Molecule Level, Implications for Myelodysplastic Syndromes and Acute Myeloid Leukemia. I'll put links to those both in the show notes and see you next time. Don't just read the guidelines is for education and entertainment only and should not be taken as medical advice. I certainly can't guarantee the factual accuracy of the content, nor do my guests' views reflect my own. If you notice any errors, please feel free to tweet me, at Richard Booker. If you like these podcasts, please take the time to write a review on iTunes, Google, or wherever else you listen. It will really help others find the podcast. See you soon.